Welcome to My Two Cents with Keith Beggs from Steadfast Wealth Strategies. In this podcast, we show high-level executives and business owners why comprehensive financial planning and executive bonus structures don't have to be too good to be true. Keith draws on his experience in realistic financial planning, and expert guests share his two cents about academically-based financial planning that you have to hear to believe. Now, on to the show. With more information than ever just flooding the market, it really is paramount that you know what is actual truth and what some might call the myths of investing. You know, this may come as something of a surprise, but not everything you hear on the news or read on the internet is accurate. And hopefully over these next two podcasts, we can debunk some investment beliefs that could really be hurting you. And then we can talk about investing from an academic point of view. I'm Patrice Sikora with your host, Keith Beggs. And Keith, tell me, you're talking about some myths and some truths here. What are we going to tackle first? Yeah, so uh, before we dive into the meat of it, I, I want to go over just some assertions where some things that we believe to hold true um, that we're going to dive into. So these next two podcasts are going to be a little bit more academic, uh, I think we could say, than some of the other ones that we've had. But I think they're paramount, uh, and, and it's important for people to have this information as you know, if we go back to what we talked about previously with procrastination and, and making these mm, decisions, yeah. we need good information to make decisions to help us out. And so we need to make sure that the information we're getting is accurate and is factually based so that then we don't get that paralysis and we can actually make decisions about what we want to do. So a couple of assertions that we want to make here. We believe there are four destructive myths about investing. We're going to talk about those today. Then we believe there are three academic theories that dispel these myths, and we'll go over those on the next podcast. And then finally, we believe academic application builds a better portfolio, and it helps lead to a, a, a better opportunity for uh, investing investment peace of mind, right? We can't guarantee investing peace of mind, right? But right. by academically investing, we believe you have an opportunity to, to achieve that. So that's kind of what we want to talk about today. So all right, quick, so let's go let's, ahead. Let's start with the myths. You say there are four of them. And it looks like to me, like uh, one is stock picking. Come on. How can that be? How can that be detrimental? Correct. So we believe there are four myths that, uh, that, that really hurt people when it comes to investing. And we believe stock picking is the number one. And, and what you'll see it and what happens a lot is when you go sit down with a stockbroker or a traditional financial advisors, one of the first questions we get asked a lot and that almost every advisor probably gets asked is what stock or investments do you like? Oh, right. got it. Okay. What, what the question potentially reflects is what we see is the first myth, which is stock picking, is that, that we know, right? We know which investments that we should be choosing, right? That that person has insight that can then tell them what way the market's going to go and what individual stocks to pick. So when we look at stock picking, it's choosing stocks based on a belief that what they will do in the future, right? And the myth is that investment advisors can consistently and predictably add value through individual stock picking saying that independent advisors can add value by picking individual stocks. So let's look at this from, from a holistic point of view. Basically, what we're saying is that individual mutual funds, where an advisor goes in and chooses stocks for a mutual fund, right? If you go and choose an actively, manage, actively managed mutual fund, you're saying that advisor can choose which stocks will do better over a period of time. And we go back and we look at all the data on this over the last 20 or so years, just last year, just last year, the worst 200 mutual funds were the now what are now the dead mutual funds had an average cumulative total return of negative 86%. Ooh, ooh, that hurts. Correct. 
That, that's a lot. And you know what? You'll never see that number. You'll never see that number public because they, what they do is they kill off, they kill off those mutual funds or they roll them into a different fund. And then they don't have to put up the statistics or the performance of any fund that dies. So then all the Fidelities, the Wells Fargo's, whoever it is, right? The company name doesn't matter. Whoever's running that mutual fund, they never have to show that data again. So just to give you an example here, total number of funds open as of 2020 was 32,095. The total number of funds born was 68,707. That means that 37,589 mutual funds were killed. That doesn't sound promising for an investor. Right. That means that over, I mean, if you just look at the math, they're pretty simply 32 are open, 37 are killed. Over 50% of them are killed. Yeah. So, so here's a couple of things, and this will kind of bleed in, into the second one here. One, there's, there's no data or basis that proves that people you know, can pick the correct stocks. And then two, you've got to know which one of the 68,000 are going to make it, right? Only 32,000 made it, 37 <laughs> didn't. 200 of them, cumulative re- return of negative 86%. I guarantee you, you didn't see an ad on CNN for mutual funds that lost 40% of their value for clients last year. Mm, no, no, no. Right? It's because they close those and they get rid of them. And they're able to eliminate the data once they delete those funds. So what we want people to understand is when you go in and you meet with an advisor and you ask them, hey, you know, what do you think the market's going to do? Where would you invest my money right now? What you're doing is you're giving them a license to stock pick for you. And by doing that, you're saying that they have seek information that's going to allow them to beat the market. And then what you're doing, you're setting yourself up for really potential loss and, and, and destructive or devastated returns in your portfolio. And this kind of bleeds in to the, to the second one, which is what we consider the myth is, is track record investing. Um, and this question sounds like this. Who's your favorite manager right now? Um, they'll say, hey, who's out there, Keith, right now that you think is doing really well in the market? Is it, you know, the Warren Buffetts, right? You know, different things like that. And what they're saying is that, the, that someone that did good last year or the last three years or the last five years is going to be able to do that again into the future. So what maybe, doing is maybe not. Well, right. So they we're using the performance history to determine the best investments for the future. We believe that there's no correlation to who beat the market in the past. They're going to, who's going to beat the market in the future. And if you go look at the data, right. And when this, when we talk about academic based investing, this is what we're talking about. We go look at the data, right? If there's a track record that people have been proven to be able to do this, we would be on it. Mm-hmm. But when we go look at the information, the top U.S. equity funds from 2001 to 2010 did 15.83%. So that means the top 30 equity mutual funds for the U.S. equities did an average return of almost 16% from 2001 to 2010. So you would think, hey, these 30 people got it figured out, right? The S&P average over that period of time was 1.4. Mm-hmm. So, uh, hey, sitting down with someone like, well, you know, John, these guys, the last 10 years, they've done 15%. The market did 1.4. I think we should invest with them. Well, if you go look from 2011 to 2020, those same 30 funds did 6.3% when the S&P did almost 14%. So what happened? Yeah. What happened? (laughs) What happened? Did they not, are they not smart anymore? You know, like, why couldn't they continually do this? And what happens a lot of time, right, is that we miss 
the good years for the investor. So we don't get in before he has his big years because we don't know about him before he has his big years. He's not been on the cover of the magazine. He's not made the talk show rounds up. He's not been on Fox business, right? He's not in on the investment magazine covers. So the years that made him, right? The track record that he developed to get on the magazine, we've already missed. Right. And so we're just doing it on the, uh, on the basis that he can continue to do it in the future. And if you look historically over time, no one has been able to do it over the future, into the future. But isn't that what everybody hangs their hat on? I mean, I had a great couple of years back there and I'm going to continue to do it. How do these advisors stay on top? Well, they don't, honestly. A lot of times they don't. And it goes back to what we talked about with the first myth, right? They can delete mutual fund X, right? It has a bad year, open a new mutual fund, right? Get rid of all their bad performance data and only tout their new data. So give an example. Fidelity has over 1,500 mutual funds. Why do they need 1,500 mutual funds if they know what's going to happen? Well, it's, it's the law of large numbers. If I have 1,500 people doing something, someone's going to be able to beat the market in a given year, in a given two years, in a given 10-year time period, all right? Mm -hmm. The question is, I need to know if I'm an investor who that person is before those 10 years. It does me no good to find out who just did it the previous 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if we had, uh, when we do events or workshops, which we're getting to start to do again, uh, what we'll do is we'll pass out a quarter to everybody in the room and we'll have everybody stand up and we'll all flip the quarter and everyone who has heads continues to stand and everyone has tails sits down. And if we do this, depending on the size of the room, let's say we have 50 people in a room, typically we'll get to someone that flips heads six or seven times in a row. Do they have any special skill over the person that flipped (laughs) tails the first time? No. If we played the game again, do they have, would you bet on that person winning? No. Hey, they were able to do it. They did (laughs) it last time. Their luck is all gone. The luck, right? The luck is all gone. But if I have 50 people in a room doing it, the chances that someone flips heads five times in a row is pretty likely. Right? I don't know the exact statistic on mm-hmm. it. I mean, I've yeah. seen it before. But the more people I have doing it, the higher chance I have of getting that one person that's able to complete the task. And that's how a lot of these businesses use mutual funds. Let's get 1,500 out there going for it. Someone's got to be able to do it, whether it's blind luck or whatever it is. But it has no correlation on what's going to happen in the future. I mean, if you go look, so they're just, just at the S&P. So if you look at all the average U.S. mutual funds, and we go back from 1972 to 2020, okay, and let's say we started with $100,000. And if you were to just use the average U.S. mutual fund return versus the S&P 500 return, mm-hmm. if you do the average U.S. mutual fund return, you had, your 100000 would have grown to $4.9 million. The S&P grew to $10.2 million. That's a difference, considerable difference. It's a considerable difference. It's double. Yeah. It's double. I mean, they didn't even get into the cost, right? And we'll talk a bit more about cost here in a little bit, but the cost of mutual funds, right? And the cost of active management and those type of things. But it's, it's we want to believe that someone out there has a secret sauce that can help us, right? Yeah. It would make us feel good. And it does make us feel good when we go into someone's office, right? And they tell us they have all the answers, Right. But unfortunately, when it comes to investing, the answer is that no one has the answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you need to take an academic approach. You need to have a broadly diversified portfolio. You need to rebalance. 
You need to quit trying to chase greed, right? And, and these returns. And we've talked about some of these things in previous podcasts about our emotions, right? Greed and fear and how that plays into our returns and, and our performance and these type of things. Um, and, and, and hearing that someone else had a, a great year last year where they got 40, 45%, but there's no correlation that that guy's going to do it again. Right. And actually most of the data proves that he's not going to be the guy that does it again. So if you've already had the big year, he's not where we want to go. We really want to be selling that and buying low, right? That's the whole mantra of investing, mm -hmm. sell high, buy low, right? So that's some, that's something we do. Which, so again, brings us, which brings us to market timing. Yes. So market timing, right? So what is, what is market timing? It's an attempt to alter or change the mix of assets based on a prediction or forecast about the future. So the myth, money managers are able to utilize market timing to effectively predict up and down markets. You mean you can't do that? Come on, Keith. Uh, no, I know I cannot. But uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people that tell you they can. Um, it's one of the biggest industries out there. All the financial books and magazines telling you, um, we're, you know, we're set up for a market crash. We can't handle this much debt. We can't do this. Now is the time to run, right? Jim Cramer, all those people are telling you right? When to get in, when to get out of the market. And market timing is killing people's retirements. Mm. It's killing people's retirement. So if you go back and let's just look at the S&P again, and there's an independent research firm out there called Dalbar. Okay. So mm. among other things, they do studies uh, on investment behavior. And so they looked at the results of investors from 1991 to 2019 through 2019. So it's a 30 year study. And during that more than 30-year time period, the S&P index returned 9.96% mm -hmm. annualized rate of return. The average equity fund investor got 5.04% during that time period. Mm. So there was 9.96 on the table if you just bought and hold the S&P. And by the way, the S&P is an inefficient investment, but it's just what most people consider the U.S. market. Why is it ineff inefficient? Well, because it's, it's limiting you to only 500 companies. Mm -hmm. Why do we want to choose only 500 companies? There's a lot more companies out there. And if you go look at uh, market, which is efficient frontier model, the standard deviation, the risk factored in for the return, it's not of an efficient investment vehicle. But it's what most people consider, right? The US market. And when you look at most people's investment portfolio, that's where about 80 to 90% of their equities are. And they might own the S&P seven different ways, but they own the S&P. <laughs> it's true. But I mean, it's, it's still better than what most people are getting by about 45, 50%. And the reason that is, is because people are building portfolios and they're trying to market time and they, they, they get worried about the election, right? I said with some a gentleman the other day, he was worried about the election in, in, in 2019 or 2020, excuse me, the last Biden Trump election. He went to heavy bonds in June from June till now he had 50% of his, two plus million dollar portfolio in bonds that was in equities. The market uh -huh. was up 35, 40%. Yeah. He cost himself half a million to a million dollars trying to time the market. And now when do you get back in? That's the thing with market timing. You got to be right twice. Yeah. You got to get out right before the drop. And then you got to get back in before the rebound. So there's some other, uh, some great data out there. So if we just go from 2001 to March 31st of this year, there was 5,000 trading days. If you were involved in the market and all those, and I believe, let's see here, uh, it started with 
you would have grown that to $50,000. If you just missed the five biggest days, so if you were out of the market only five days out of those 5,000, you were in there the other 4,995, but just missed the five best days, your 50,000 would have dropped to 32,000. That's incredible. You missed the top 10 days, it drops to 23. You missed the top 30 days, you only had your, your, your 10,000 actually went down to 9,008. And by the time you get in, you've probably missed a good, at least one or two days of trading. Correct. You, ne you never get back in in time. That go so, I mean, this, this right here backs up the Dow Bar research, right? Why are clients and investors only getting 5.04% when the market's giving 9.9? Because they're trying to market time. Whether that's because their advisor is telling them to market time, or because their own intuition is telling them market time, or the news is telling them in market time, or the radio is telling them to market time, wherever this is, right, that's preying on their emotions of greed and fear is getting them to do this. There's no need to market time if you build a balanced portfolio based on your risk assessment, meaning most people market time because they have a fear of loss of money and they don't know how much money they could lose if the market dropped. And that's because they've done a lack of preparing or a lack of preparation. If you understand the volatility in your account and you understand your risk assessment level, right? If you can only withstand a seven to 10% drop, your portfolio should mirror that. And so that if the market falls out again, like it did in 2008, you're within that seven to 10% range and you could stick to your plan you could stick to your portfolio and then you could actually be buying the market on the way down. Mm -hmm. What you want to be doing when the market drops is rebalancing. You want to be selling your bonds and buying equities the whole way down. The only reason you wouldn't want to do that is if you believe the market will never go back up. And if you don't believe in markets, then we shouldn't be in, in there the in the first period. place. Right. Yeah. right. So you have to assume everyone that owns equities believes in markets over time. They, no one believes that this is the highest the market will ever go or we would all be getting out. That's right. That's absolutely right. As the you market. say, when you see it going down, if you've got the cash, why not get in? Correct. If you've built a, if you've built a proper portfolio, you should be rebalancing that whole time. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and you know, there's a huge wealth transfer when the market drops. There's a huge wealth transfer from the people that were prepared, that built the correct portfolio versus the people that are just kind of doing this on the, by the seat of their pants. There, there's a great quote. So there's a gentleman uh, named Charles Ellis. In 1985, he was the founder and former managing partner of Greenwich Associates, and they were a leading consulting firm. And he authored the book, Investment Policy, How to Win the Loser's Game. <laughs> and uh, he said, the evidence on investment manager's success with market timing is impressive, and it's overwhelmingly negative. Oh. <laughs> so if people want to use data and academics and science when they're doing investing, all of those things have been using, used to do the research on market timing and the results are impressive <laughs> and they're clear cut and there's no two ways about it. They're overwhelmingly negative. You got to be right twice. It's hard enough to be right once with investing. Better yet to be right twice. And if you go back and you just miss five days, it costs you mm. for your 10,000 grows to 32 over 50. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, talk so, to me now about cost of investing. Yeah. So, you know, the, everyone kind of believes that what you don't see can't hurt you in terms of cost or that, or that all investments cost the same, right? And But we want to talk about fees incurred by investors to buy and sell and own stocks and mutual funds really have an impact. 
So the main costs of investing are the bid and ask spread. Okay. And that's the difference between the, the price that, that the stock costs and what you have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the, the stock broker or the, the person in, in New York that's, so if you go sell a stock, you don't actually sell it to another person. You sell it to one of those, um, those guys on the floor, right? That you see in New York, and then they go find a buyer. So mm -hmm. there's a spread in there that they charge and that costs money. Um, give an example. They might, it might cost you $50 to buy a stock, but the guy that sold it, sold it for 49.50 and that 50 cent spread goes to the maker, right? Mm -hmm. The market maker. And so there's a cost in there when you're buying and selling stocks. The other thing is when a mutual fund does this, they have cost, right? So in the U.S. large market, it's a pretty small cost. It's only four basis points for each on each side of that. But if you get into some of the smaller stocks, which you should have, uh, those costs can go up to 32 basis points or 0.66% per complete circular transaction. That means a buy and sell, right? Typically, when you buy one or sell one, you buy another right? You're trading stocks inside a portfolio. And so just something to think about, not all activity is productivity from a manager, mm -hmm. right? I, you know, just if your manager is telling you that he's always out there buying, selling and trading, well, there's a cost to that and he's not paying it. Yeah. Right? That cost is being rolled to you. And so do you need to be aware of that in an actively managed fund? Um, the average cost can be up to 1.6%. And, and that's how, just commissions. How does an investor know that? Um, well, they don't a lot of times on, on the buy and sell cost, the bid ask price, right? What they will see is there, you could see the mutual fund fee, right? Mm -hmm. So the mutual fund will have a fee and the, you'll heard of uh, no load mutual funds right. where they think where they don't have a fee. Well, those typically have a very high bid ask spread, right? So if I'm paying 66 basis points per transaction, they don't need to charge a fee on top of that. They're being compensated pretty well, right? So you just got to be aware of those things. I mean, the 1.6% is pretty high. If you look at it, I mean, if you're looking at some, when transactions costs are added up to funds, expense ratios and everything else, I mean, you could have some, some mutual funds or some actively managed funds where your total fees are in a three to 4% range. And it's just very hard to make money consistently when you're paying that much in fees. And so I, I always just kind of tell people activity is not always productivity. Um, sometimes the best thing to do is kind of sit pat, right? Mm -hmm. We built a portfolio. Now, if, if we need to buy or sell because we're rebalancing our portfolio, not because we got a whim that with this new stock's the greatest stock or this stock's failing and we want to get out of it, right? We're not stock picking and market timing with our buying and selling, but we're doing it to rebalance. And what I mean by that is a, our U.S. large is too high, right? So now that our risk ratio is, our risk return ratio is off. So we have to sell that. We need to go buy something that's low. That's the only time you really want to be buying and selling inside of your account. And if you do that, you'll be able to greatly reduce your costs and again, have a more efficient portfolio. All of these things are built to have a more academically based, efficient portfolio. We want to capture as much return as we should expect for amount of risks that we're willing to take. The idea that you're going to consistently beat the market and have higher returns in the market is fool's gold. And I think the quicker people realize that, the quicker they'll get to that investment peace of mind. The, the market will give them plenty of return. You can get plenty of returns if you just build a well-balanced, diversified portfolio and you're able to stick with it. Don't get caught up in the trap of always trying to be the best in the market uh, or chasing the, the, mm -hmm. the highest return or the next great fund manager. Uh, more often than not, it leads to disaster. Now, there's very few success stories and there are countless, countless failure stories out there. So just some things to be wary of. So we've kind of hammered 
right? Some of the negative aspects of active managing, some things that people deal with. Uh, on our next episode, we'll kind of move into what should people be doing, right? Okay, Keith, if, if we're not going to stock pick, if we're not going to track record invest, if we're not going to market time, how do we do this? And so next week, we'll cut our next podcast. Uh, we'll go over the three academic philosophies that we believe lead to true investment peace of mind. And so if you're dealing with any of the things that we talked about today, where if, you're, if this kind of hit some red flags where it made you uncomfortable and you see some of these things in your current portfolio and you'd like to talk to us, we'd love to visit with you, answer any questions. Um, you can find us online at steadfastws.com. You can email me at Keith at steadfastws.com or give me a call at 832-506-9034. And that is Keith Beggs of Steadfast Wealth Strategies, the host of this podcast, My Two Cents. Subscribe and you'll be among the first to know when new episodes are ready for you. And of course, share with friends and colleagues. They will appreciate it. I'm Patrice Sikora and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to My Two Cents with Keith Beggs. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. All securities discussed are offered and provided through Steadfast Financial Planning, LLC. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Steadfast Wealth Strategies. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor and or qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This podcast is not intended to provide specific investment, financial planning, tax, or legal advice. It is intended for educational purposes only. Please consult your tax advisor, financial advisor, or legal professional for specific advice on your specific situation.